This is an Oldest Stories bonus episode. In a sense, this is a question-and-answer episode about the Israel series. I've gotten questions from people writing in and from church friends and even from my mother. And I think the core of all the questions is an inability among people who respect the Bible to take it seriously as history. We have multiple times in this series looked at Bible skeptics who refuse to take the Bible at all as history, and we concluded that there are some places in Scripture where we do lack enough archaeological support to claim the veracity of the stories as presented definitively, but also that many parts of Scripture really are plausibly historical, or indeed sometimes even externally objectively verified. To the skeptics, I've often argued that if the hyper-skeptical approaches they take were applied to anything outside Scripture, they would be left with essentially nihilism. And to be sure, some do go there and try to live their lives with little more than I think, therefore I am, and build whole careers off extreme historical skepticism, but today's episode isn't about these critiques of Bible history. I put my case on the matter in previous episodes. No, today we are dropping all pretense of objectivity, because for all that it's important to examine the Bible as a source of evidence on God and history, once we've completed that examination, we need to either accept or reject it. And at the end of the day, we have enough reasons to see God's hand in our world and in our past that we can proudly accept it and move on from there. And within the faith context, we need to examine our scriptures properly, completely, and soberly, accepting what we find there and building our lives on that, not inserting what we already have in our lives into the scriptures. But before I get too far off track with sermonizing, you see I'm already already starting. The first question for today comes from my dear sweet mother. Now, I'm going to be honest, she doesn't listen to most of my podcast episodes, and that's just fine. But she has always loved the stories of King Solomon. And when she got a notice that I did an episode on him, she listened to it. But then it seems she was very worried, and she told me it had burst her bubble about a man she'd always thought to be basically the wisest and best of all men. And though Solomon himself is not, you know, a huge part of her life, I got the impression that I had taken something she had held dear since childhood and forced her to abandon it. Now, obviously, I did not start this podcast with the intention of upsetting my mother. But beyond just that, I've had a few people comment to me, sort of offhand, that I've been a bit rough with many of the biblical characters, especially David and Solomon. And that is true. And this was absolutely my intention, but this is not me just trying to be mean. My goal through all of this is to cause us to look at history more historically. To look at the brokenness of men, the holiness of God, and the humanness of his prophets. This is what I mean. 
And, and there really isn't a neutral example to take in a religious context. So in a secular sense, consider Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian guy. For many, he's famous for his peaceful protests, for helping found modern India. And in these things, he does seem to have been a figure worth admiring and emulating. On the other hand, he was into some weird stuff sleeping with his underage girl relatives, though like King David, he always maintained that they were just sleeping under those covers together. He also apparently pressured women into allowing him to administer enemas to them, and sometimes sharing joint enemas together. And these two accusations do appear pretty well grounded in my admittedly limited research, Gandhi haters, which apparently that's a whole group of people on the internet, they have a whole lists of things that they accuse the Indian hero of, but just this is going to be enough for us today. If these accusations are true, and let's just assume for now that they are, does this make Gandhi a good man and a hero of a nation? Or is he a vile man who should be rejected, in modern terms, canceled? Now, a full breakdown of that question is probably beyond the scope of the show, but specifically in a biblical context, it reminds us that Gandhi is neither good nor evil, but human. All people aren't just basically good, and neither are we all unrecoverably depraved. God has given to all men the tendency towards both, and the free will to choose between them. King David was in so many ways chosen by God as a life to hold up before all men of what was pleasing to him. We hear over and over again that David was a righteous man and that blessings came upon him, his nation, and his lineage to the point of being a primary named ancestor of the future Messiah. And oftentimes we hear about this being because of his faith during his period of persecution, or really his just continuing faith throughout his whole life. And of course, beyond just his faith, he was clearly well-remembered among many in Judah for his remarkable achievements in establishing the kingdom of Israel. And yet, imagine yourself in that ancient world. Not you as some Israelite peasant, but modern you. Time traveled back 3,000 years to observe and live through the unfolding of history. Imagine... You see this warlord who murders, and he lies to priests, and he commits adultery, and he murders to cover that up, and rumors are everywhere that, you know, he led raids against his own people for the benefit of the Philistines. He takes slaves, he sells slaves, he keeps slaves, and he's even really questionable theologically, since remember that plague a while ago? That was all because he took a census. But then, in response to the plague, he didn't even go to the presence of God at the tabernacle in Gideon. He just declared that, oh yeah, Jerusalem's now, this is where we're going to pray now. 
And after it all blew over, instead of letting God direct the Ark of the Covenant across God's lands, David directed the Ark into David's city. You would be outraged. You would be calling him corrupt. You would be calling him a hypocrite. You would remind everyone that the books of Moses instruct that only God can select his holy sites. And a violator of the laws, and especially a violator of our modern humanist ethics, could not possibly be worthy of following. What does the Bible say? Bad fruit always comes from a bad tree. And yet, for all that I can see it, and for all that I worry that I might be right there with you, wagging my finger, you'd be wrong. God himself has told us that you are wrong in his holy writ, both across the Old and New Testaments. David was a man and a sinner, but of course I repeat myself there, but in his darkest times, he continued to hold faith. And through the Psalms and stories, we can hear his repentance. What's more, God had callings for David in David's life, and he fulfilled them. He is the faithful servant who was given five talents and returned a full ten to his master. And as such was blessed well out of proportion to even David's mighty deeds. But you, as a modern time traveler, are sitting there in the streets of Jerusalem, looking at the blood on David's spear, looking at the betrayals and failures and atrocities that Scripture clearly acknowledges were a major part of his life and reign. And the judgment of God upon all this is that David will be blessed above all in his generation, and above most in most generations, for his faithfulness and obedience. And he's only going to be punished by not being allowed to construct the great temple. And I mean, you or me, we just, we see this, we instinctively try and post on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, because the world needs to know how unjust and unfair this is. God is elevating a monster. Not just someone who's done a few things I disagree with, but one who's done many things I am appalled by. But of course, it's 1000 BCE. Your cell phone doesn't have signal. God alone, in this case, sees that you consider your own judgment higher than his. Unless, of course, you try and shout it in the street only to get stoned to death for a combination of anti-king rhetoric and blasphemy. But hold on to that thought. Before we get to the idea of God being wrong, let's bring this back to what really matters for us, modern men. Because this is the great lesson of history. Men are the same as they've always been in a fundamental sense. When we hero-worship the heroes of Scripture or the great men of history, we despair in our own day because no one can measure up to what came before. But the truth is always that those people had their own failings, their own critics, 
God has always used broken men as his tools because, I mean, that's all he's put on this earth to work with. And in a way, it is always more powerful when a story features a weak man overcoming a great obstacle than when a superman does the same. When we see people on the earth today who are trying to do good, or at least trying to do good in their own eyes, yet marred by personal failure and shortcomings, our society, especially our American political society, but it really extends far beyond that as well, we're either going to rip a person apart for having a failure, never letting David take his God-given throne because of questions about Nabal's fate, or we're going to hero-worship them wholly, refusing to acknowledge them as men. Often, half of society pursues each course, rather than all of society examining both evenly, leading to each modern famous person really becoming two separate people in the eyes of the world, a disconnect unable to be bridged by reality. And so to return to my mother, I would say that the solution to all our modern problems is found in deeper scripture study and more consistent emulation of the historical example of Jesus Christ. King Solomon was a great man. He was given much, and he made much with it. His wisdom tradition is almost certainly founded on something, probably a lot of wisdom on his part. And given the time in which he lived and the madness within the court he grew up, it most likely reflects that he was a genius personally, and that he made a remarkable dedication to scholarly pursuits. He lived a long enough life to have some great achievements and also to lose his focus. After all, having done so much, who can really blame a man for wanting to take his wealth and enjoy it for himself? You know, retirement, that's not an option for most kings, but he can certainly have a nice palace and harem, right? And being so wise and compassionate, he knew that the foreigners living within Israel should be respected, both to prevent conflict and support human decency. David, being a man of passions, failed when his passions ruled. Solomon, being a man of peace, failed when his peacefulness ruled. These were still great men to be admired, because God holds both of them up as the best of all kings in his monarchy. And at the same time, they were men. Not something we should be upset over, but charitable and merciful for. And we should also remember that some of the deeds that we nowadays put on their tally of sins, such as intolerance of outsiders, may not have actually been sins at the time or in the eyes of God. And this gets us neatly into our second question. I was standing around in the church foyer one Sunday morning when a nice lady asked me about my podcast and how it was going. Now, I'm about to kind of tear her opinion apart a little bit, so I should start out by saying this lady is not dumb. 
she's not ill-intentioned, and she's not in any way worthy of rebuke. I use her story because it so very powerfully illustrates what I see in a lot of the world and in Christian thought. I explained to her that I was working on the story of Joshua and the Canaanite genocide, because that's just where I happened to be at the moment, and because I wanted to keep things positive for a pretty casual conversation, mentioned that, oh, you know, Joshua, he didn't really slaughter all the Canaanites. And she pretty quickly replied with something like, well, I heard from some respected person a very good thing on that topic. He said that if you read your Bible and you think that God commanded a genocide, then you've clearly read your Bible wrong. And that's always been a very uplifting idea for me. Or something like that. I don't remember exactly what she said. Now, I don't know if this nice lady ever subsequently listened to any of my episodes on Joshua or Judges, but in that particular context, I couldn't do anything but, you know, just politely smile and escape. Uh, because for those of you who remember those episodes, which were admittedly a long time ago now, my own conclusion was rather different from hers. It wasn't that the Canaanite genocide didn't happen because genocide is evil and God would never command such a thing. Rather, the genocide failed to occur despite God's extremely clear commands. And very nearly all of the chosen people's later problems, up to and including the Babylonian exile, stem from this initial failure to slaughter the men, women, children, infants, livestock, and pets wholesale. Details on that in the relevant episodes. Especially in the context we find ourselves in now, having seen more than a handful of astonishingly brutal wars in recent years, and even more so for our ability to see videos of both the brutality of war and, in fact, straight-up war crimes online, sometimes live-streamed by the combatants, those of us who aren't just desensitized from the imagery have grown extremely sensitive to the horror which sinful men can produce in the world. And so when we see God or his confirmed holy men committing acts which repulse and terrify the humanity within us, it is a testament to our kindness and our empathy that we just recoil in horror. And God is perfect in his kindness and complete in his empathy. So we wonder, how could God order such acts? How could God commit such acts? Surely for one of his depth of understanding, it should be easy to create a world which avoids such unpleasantness. But this gets us into theodicy, a subject which we've touched upon in our looks at Job and Lamentations recently. God does not, in fact, make the world in order for us to feel good all the time. If that were the case, he, in his infinite wisdom, could give us divine narcotics applied directly to the soul and not worry about the whole creation thing. 
As soon as he made a grand and complex universe for us to inhabit, however, he basically gave away that life was more complicated than just feeling good. But getting away from theodicy, it's not wrong for me to pray that I would like to feel better, at least not if I'm praying in the right way. As I put this episode together, I've actually had a pretty bad flu for the last week, and I prayed for that very thing. I'd like to feel better, please. With world events like the war and atrocities, it's probably all right to pray that those go away. Though I do sometimes wonder about the warning in Jeremiah, where the prophet is told by God not to pray for the people of Judah because God has put them under a curse. Though I imagine in my own case it's okay to pray because I haven't been informed of anyone specifically being under a curse. But that gets us to the heart of the issue. It's one thing to pray for these people and hope that better things come to them. It's an entirely separate thing to say that God is wrong for putting people in these horrible situations. Which is, of course, exactly what we do when we ignore the matter of the Canaanite genocide. And I picked this one in particular because the sorts of things that God wanted to happen in that case are things we pretty universally oppose in modern-day wars. But there are plenty of other examples, scripturally, of things that people just don't like. If I think that genociding the Canaanites in that particular circumstance of one of 1200 BC or whenever it happened, if I think that that was morally wrong, then I am simply mistaken. God said that the slaughter of every living human of the wrong ethno-religious group in that circumstance was not just good, but obligatory for his people in that place at that time. And just to be clear here, if you are a follower of the God of Israel, you read your scriptures and you see that God commanded a genocide and that he was morally correct in doing so. If we at any time consider ourselves in a position where we say God must be wrong about this, then we are guilty of tremendous hubris. We just looked at the book of Job not too long ago, and that famously ended with God's game of 101 questions. Go back and reread that and ask yourself how many of those questions even make sense to you. I'm not God. You're not God. You and I are limited humans, unaware of the true and full scope of God's objectives for the universe. While we're on the subject of answering questions, one that my wife asks me sometimes is, what is the point of this or that obscure historical fact? She particularly does this when I'm getting a bit too carried away with details that matter a bit less than, you know, taking out the trash or getting the floor swept in our house, but her point is a good one to consider in all of historical study, not just when we have 
more important things to do. And for me, the point of much of it is to remember that every one of the people in our study of history and the variety of cultures which have existed on this earth is pretty much a person exactly like you or I. We, in our hubris, stand profoundly convinced of the correctness of our own moral positions. But when you read enough of history, you see millions of people who also stood convinced of their own morality and worldview, even when that included things like foot-binding, slavery, polygamy, immodesty, homosexuality, witchcraft, spanking children, eating raw fish, multi-day fasting, all-night drum circles, cultic prostitution, frilly clothing, suicidally absolute pacifism, head-hunting, wife-swapping, ancestor worship, perpetual warfare, full-body tattooing, child sacrifice, and being French. In all the cultures which do these things, the people in them have been fully convinced as to the moral rightness of their actions. And if you look at cultures that don't do these things, at least some people have been convinced of the wrongness of everything on this list, with, of course, many being undecided if they don't care so much about child sacrifice, maybe they just don't think about it. We can hardly imagine that anyone would ever be convinced of the rightness of genocide. And yet other people, just as human as you or I, have been largely convinced historically that there's no way anyone could oppose genocide, at least on certain grounds and towards correct targets. Even just looking around at other humans and the range of opinion which has existed on nearly any topic, why is it that we should think that our one culture, indeed probably our one subculture within a wider, fairly diverse culture, has the one and only true and correct answers to all moral questions? No, we should not be so convinced. Certainty in this matter is hubris and folly, even just based on the witness of history. Now return to our earlier question and consider God. God, who is vastly greater than you in all possible ways, whose motives are, to a certain degree, profoundly unfathomable to you, both practically and theoretically. Should we expect that our moral beliefs, which are almost universally a product of our culture, formed through a process of obedience and rebellion to the catalog of moral decisions that culture decided to offer us, should we expect that those would match God's? No. No, we should not. Indeed, we should expect to regularly be wrong much the way that we're wrong through our regular habit of sinning day to day, or that we're often wrong on matters of fact. If you read the Bible, then, and you find that God has committed a genocide, the correct response is not to read it out of Scripture, but to read it into your own life. 
Now, I will say that there are some moral questions in Scripture answered only obliquely, about which the debate around the text itself is merited. But for something like the Canaanite genocide, it would require a rejection of much of the Old Testament to work past that. And so we, as faithful Christians and Jews, accept that while the Canaanites were only partially genocided as a matter of historical fact, it was a good thing in the degree that they were slaughtered and would have been better had more slaughter occurred. Now, now that I've been fully, thoroughly demonetized by YouTube and kicked off every platform of the internet, let's ask the question, does that make me, quote, a supporter of genocide? And this, I think, is where modern thinkers often fall off the rails. I am a supporter of doing what God commands. If God commands me to commit a genocide in a certain scenario, I'm going to do it, just as I would offer up my only begotten son in sacrifice if God commanded it, or marry a prostitute if God commanded it, or move to another country, sell all my goods and devote myself to missionary work if God commands it. I mean, all that at least exists in theory, there remains the natural hesitation and laziness to overcome. I don't even show up at church every Sunday regularly, uh, but the concept is there. I know I should be doing these things. But at the same time, at the same time as all that, I'm not going to just commit a genocide because I get bored over the weekend. God has given us a set of rules to live by, which all in all are pretty restrictive and keep us fairly well out of what most people would consider to be questionable moral territory. Usually, we're commanded not only to not genocide, but not even to murder. Indeed, Jesus said, don't just not murder, don't even get angry. Through a set of general principles, we have rules that quite nicely suits most humans in most situations in life. And yet occasionally, God in his wisdom sees fit to order men to commit war crimes. And when this happens, we should not be morally conflicted, even if we don't understand it. We should when we are certain that it is God, that's important, we should rejoice in his word. That last bit, it's so important. We do need to be certain in cases of such rule violations that it is God himself and not our own madness or desires. But in the case of Joshua's genocide, at least, we have multiple clear witnesses in Scripture that genocide was indeed what God asked of that generation. But this ties back into what really matters. The same thing I was talking about with the flawed moral leaders of the Bible. Nowadays, many of us are too skeptical insisting that anyone who claims God talks to them is a loony or a fraud. Many others, meanwhile, are not skeptical enough, 
running off with any mad cult who can fake a miracle or two. If you, you now, were brought back to the time of Joshua, how would you have known not to prosecute him for war crimes? How would you have known not to prosecute God himself for war crimes? Honestly, I know of nothing better than discernment and faith for these things, and the first of which is not a gift that God has given equally to all men, while the second is an extremely hard quality to nurture in ourselves. This is why history matters, and just as importantly, why the Bible matters as history. Because we cannot learn these lessons if we see people as pure paragons or pure villains. We cannot properly understand the moral lessons of Scripture if we hold on to our own arrogant cultural vantage point. Can you take a person who's been publicly convicted of a heinous crime and find merit in his life? Can you read through Ted Kaczynski's manifesto objectively? Can you read a sermon from a pastor who you know was later convicted of rape? Beyond just people, can you take objectionable ideas and consider them neutrally? Can you put forward a compelling argument in favor of slavery? Can you understand why foot binding was practiced for so many generations? Can you get into the head of Joshua as he prepared to slaughter the Canaanites, and then again when he stayed his hand? The human mind, same as yours, same as mine, has justified all this and more in a full feeling of righteousness. To understand these viewpoints doesn't mean we have to endorse them. Indeed, we can only in good faith ever endorse one side of an issue, just as we should strive to understand all sides. And this remains, of course, an ideal, motivating a lifetime of study. We can never actually achieve this level of universal empathy on all subjects for all people in a single lifetime. But for all that God often gives parables, laws, songs, and simpler ways to comprehend his will, he's also given us history, both sacred and secular histories, that we may learn this vastly more complicated task from a vastly more human source material. But of course, what I'm proposing is that through all that, and even if we were somehow to reach the end of all necessary pondering on all abstract ethics and the character of men we're in contact with is all fully understood to us, we should still, in all things, defer to the word of God, which for all but the most attuned of prophets enters our life chiefly through the volumes of Scripture. That's not an historical note. I'm saying that everyone listening should at least try attempting to order their lives as God has set forth, which is, of course, why this is a bonus episode, because not everyone listening right now is actually interested in that, and a good number of you have stopped listening long since. 
I'm not much for apologetics, but I do bear my own witness that Christ is the Lord, that God's word is true in ancient times and today, and that nothing will make a bigger difference for you both mortally and eternally than embracing for yourself the miracle of faith, repentance, and baptism. But of course, that's all incumbent upon you accepting the word of God as true. It wouldn't make much sense for you to take up any of this if it were nonsense. And as some people have noticed, I have in this series been pretty hard in my criticisms of the historical accuracy of certain parts of the biblical story. I've been skeptical of entire stories and outright rejected certain details, essentially throwing out the majority of the numerical values presented in the text. The question then is how can we accept this text as true, as a foundation for life, if we cannot be absolutely certain of the little literal truth of every word in it? Now, biblical literalism is a big topic and one much debated. Judging from what I see among YouTube theologians and pastors, the current debate revolves around the significance of genre and how we decide what parts are poetic, particularly around the book of Genesis. And yet my concern in this series has not been so much on those parts, but on the more clearly historical details within clearly historical books. Now, I don't think I've picked quite every nit but I have been as sharp as I can in my examination, which has confused at least one friend of mine. I am, in his mind, adamant that the Bible is true and that the skeptical position should be rejected, and then in the next paragraph I'm tearing it apart over what he sees as pretty minor errors. So allow me to clarify. Scripture, you see, makes a bold claim to be the word of the universal creator, which reveals his will for his creation. This is, to use the words of a certain American president, big if true. Such a monumental claim deserves a monumental amount of skepticism. We need to search our scriptures, pour over them line by line, and evaluate as honestly as we can what we find there. And so, if we find things in Scripture which conflict with our understanding of the world, or indeed which conflict with Scripture itself, then we should not hesitate to call those things out, because the whole world needs to know if this is or is not God's Word. And so throughout the series, I've picked apart various things with as great a deal of scrutiny as I can muster. For example, the issue of numbers, the ages of patriarchs, the counts of the censuses, the years between this reign and that one, I've pointed out repeatedly that the numbers in the Old Testament are an absolute mess and largely should not be trusted. The heart of the issue is that we have three main lines of textual tradition in the Old Testament. We have the text of the rabbis, called the Masoretic Text. We have the ancient Greek translation called the Septuagint, and we have the Samaritan version of the text as well, at least for the first five books. 
In some places, we also have a fourth witness in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but those are largely fragmentary in the areas that we're interested in. What we find among those biblical witnesses, however, is that a large number of the numbers, especially the contextless ones like ages and accountings, are consistently garbled to the point where each of the three witnesses has different values for these numbers, making the original value impossible to recover. And this isn't even an historical or scientific argument. It's purely from the text of the scriptures themselves that we confront this issue. And it is a genuine problem. What it tells us is that the transmission of scripture over the ages is not and has never been protected by the Holy Spirit. And fortunately, Christian doctrine has rarely proclaimed that the transmission of Scripture is in fact protected. At least my own denomination doesn't claim that. And so much as humanity itself was created very good, only to fall through our own sin, the text of Scripture, once God breathed, is now subject to mortal corruption. It is crucial for our own knowledge and for our faith in God's Word that we interrogate the text directly and unflinchingly to find those corruptions and understand them as part of the greater whole. At the same time, it becomes blasphemous when our criticism becomes baseless. If we poke at the text in the way we might poke at any other text, then we can find reliable, acceptable transmission failures. But if we simply attack the text with sophistries or without a good understanding of our methods, using things that would be invalid everywhere else, then what we're doing is pulling down scripture for the sake of pulling it down, for one of a million sinful motivations. I've called out what I th see as invalid criticism in previous episodes while championing what I find to be valid criticisms. And while I'm sure that someone else might draw that line between valid and invalid somewhere else, I'm as confident as I can be that I've been respectful of the text while also offering as much valid criticism as I can muster. And I've pursued this project throughout this series because the end result is this. The texts, and especially the translations that we have today, are the works of men. And yet, while we can see the dings and scratches of transmission, it's clear that like most ancient texts, the chain of transmission has actually proved to be remarkably reliable by most measures no less reliable than any other ancient line of transmission, and by some measures notably more reliable. Through, our, through the issues, we can see the Word of God still shining through. We see a history that aligns with our own extra-biblical investigations remarkably well. And we end up with a document which can be a firm and sure foundation. Theologically, it may even be the case that God has introduced or permitted these discrepancies because his concern is far more for our actions upon reading his words 
than it is for mere historical accuracy. But whatever the case, the end result of a year's exploration into the Old Testament is that while it does possess textual errors and translation confusions, overall, it's a work upon which to build a life. And at the end here, this is what I would encourage you to do as well. Build your life on the foundation of Scripture. I can't tell you how much my life has changed since God became a part of it, both in terms of the overwhelming shower of blessings and the changes he's made within me as a man. Now, for sure, everyone has heard testimony like this, Jesus changed my life, and so on, and so on, and so on. But if you have it in your heart to listen to me, take a listen to Christ. Consider that maybe all these believers, they're not mere ignorant sheep, maybe. Consider that perhaps your pride is causing you to consider yourself better than the people around you, as well as many generations of your own ancestors. Open up that Bible. Open up your heart. Search in the world for the Creator, and you just might gain a deeper understanding on the universe. That's my prayer for you today that you can take my words both in this episode and our previous 30 episodes of investigation and realize that history isn't just entertainment. It's a call to wisdom. The God of wisdom, the font of creation, the source of all things, your Father in heaven, he is waiting for you to turn to him, and he has worked in your life to prepare you for your return to faith. Go on. Give it a try. You can do it.